Welcome to the Vacation Effect Podcast, where we discuss time and lifestyle hacks for the busy entrepreneur, helping you grow your business even faster by working less and having a lot more fun. Now, here's your host, Denise Gosnell. Hey there, it's Denise Gosnell here, your host of the Vacation Effect Podcast. Today, I've got special guest, Rennie Gabriel, with us on the show, where we're going to talk about how to create wealth on any income. Rennie is an author, speaker, master financial coach, and the founder of Wealth on Any Income. He went from being broke at age 50 to multimillionaire after learning the three secrets of the wealthy, which I'm going to have him share with us today. Despite the fact that Rennie failed high school math, he now donates 100% of the profits from his books, online programs, and coaching to the charity Shelter to Soldier, where rescued dogs are trained as service animals for soldiers who have returned with PTSD or traumatic brain injury. Rennie's award-winning, best-selling book, Wealth on Any Income, has been translated into eight languages. Thank you so much for joining me today, Rennie. Oh, you're welcome, Denise. It's my pleasure to, to be on the show. Yeah, so I had the pleasure of meeting Rennie in person um, at the event called New Media Summit that he and I were both at uh, recently. And um, I really enjoyed the story that Rennie shared. And I'm going to have him share this with you all today because it's just a, something that everyone can benefit from in this, in navigating the world of, you know, having your ducks in order, having your financial house in order. And, um, you know, so Rennie, I'd love to have you, I noticed that your company name is Wealth on Any Income. I'd love to know what that means to you when you say wealth on any income. You know, I have my interpretation of what that means, but I'd love to hear what does that mean to you, wealth on any income? Well, what it means to me is that people can create a large net worth and it doesn't require a lot of income. Sometimes I get people who come to me and say, well, Rennie, I have disability income or all I have is my social security. Um, does that, is that a fit for me? Or maybe they're unemployed and it could be a fit except for the unemployed person. The point is it does require some income. So for an entrepreneur, um, it's really how they're handling it. And I was earning $5,000 a month at age 50 after I'd been broke and it was $500 a month that I was saving and investing that ended up producing the multi-million dollar net worth that I have. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and I, so basically then, you know, wealth on any income means live, you know, basically having a large net worth, um, even if you don't have a lot of income, but you know, you still have to have some income in order to pull it off. Exactly. And it does not have to be large. I mean, $60,000 a year is not a large income. And that's what I use to produce the results that I have. Gotcha. Yeah, well, let's dig deeper in that. What got my attention and what you said in your presentation at New Media Summit was you told the story of how you went from being broke um, three different times uh, and that at age 50, you were, you know, broke, you know, again, and then you became a multimillionaire after age 50. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, like, how, how do you go from being um, broke three different times to multimillionaire? Like, what was it that you know, you realized was happening there? Uh, what I realized was that the financial education that I had uh, and the way that I had earned a living as a certified financial planner had nothing to do with creating wealth because the very foundations that wealthy people knew, their attitudes, 
how they looked at uh, money had nothing to do with the training I received as a certified financial planner. And when I learned what I call these three secrets of the wealthy and applied them is when my world turned around. So, um, you know, I'm glad to go into that in detail if you'd like me to. Yeah, so you're piquing my curiosity here. What are those three secrets of the wealthy, if you don't mind sharing? Um, well, I created a little acronym for them. <laughs> it's AFI, which does not stand for the American Film Institute. <laughs> uh, it, it stands for attitude, forms, and investments. And what I mean by that is the wealthy have different attitudes about money than most people. The forms they use are the same forms most people use if they ever go to the bank for a loan, but they look at what's on those forms differently to create their wealth. And the last thing, I, which is investments, they are not limited to stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. Wealthy people control their investments. And when I learned this and applied it, like I said, that that's when my world transformed. Gotcha. So... So attitudes, forms, and investments. So let's talk a little bit more about attitudes about money. So what's an example of an attitude that the wealthy have about money from your perspective? I have my own opinion on that, but I want to hear yours. Well, I, I, I actually wrote a book that's going to be released soon that has 32, 33 attitudes of the wealthy in it. And one of the most important is that when a wealthy person hears familiar information, as an example, probably you and all your listeners have heard the expression, pay yourself first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think David Bach coined that term, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> if he's 5,000 years old, yes, he did. Oh, okay, it's been around a long time. All right, well, he used it yeah. in his book too, but yeah, who knows where Oh yeah, going. well, see, that's the point. It is yeah. foundational to creating wealth. And the problem is when, someone hears it, whether it's from David Bach or uh, Susie Orman or anyone, they'll say, oh, I've heard that before, or I know that, or that's not new to me. Or maybe they'll even say, well, I've done that. Well, that's the ordinary response from people, who, and they'll make a statement. What a wealthy person does with their attitude, the mindset is, when they hear familiar information, instead of making a statement, they'll ask a question. And they're the same kind of questions you were told to use when you write a story in elementary school. It's the who, what, where, when, how questions. As an example, well, where does that apply to me? Or how do I actually do that? Or when will I start that? Or who can support me in doing that? So the wealthy person asks questions when they hear familiar information and that creates the actions and, and where to go next and how to produce the result. Statements take you nowhere. Right. So as an example on this pay yourself first, what do most people do um, when they think, oh, I've already handled that. Um, when, when you say the wealthy ask questions about it, can you walk me through an example on that pay yourself first on how a wealthy person might take that to the next level or the person who is becoming wealthy because they're doing these habits, you know, that's, you have to start doing these kinds of habits to become wealthy over time, right? Exactly. And so, yeah, using the example of someone who's intending to become wealthy, um, they'll say, oh, pay yourself first. Okay, H how do I do that? Well, as an example, I was working with a uh, building contractor, and 
his gross revenues were about 350 or 400,000 a year. And I said, one of the things you need to do is pay yourself first. And he says, well, I, I can't. I mean, by the time the money comes in and I pay the laborers and I pay for the materials and uh, I don't have anything to pay myself first with. And I said, well, you're actually missing the concept. What the concept is, you keep some of the money that's coming in as though you deserve to own it, which means you keep it. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a lot of money. Why don't we just, every dollar that comes in from whoever is paying you, just set aside 1%, which he started doing. And it was so easy, he upped it to 2% and then 3%. And in a matter of a few months, he had like $50,000 from paying himself first through his business that he could then start investing and doing other projects that were more profitable than just doing work for other people. Gotcha. So in that example, you know, so for attitudes about money, asking the question of, you know, someone who, who need, who wants to become wealthy or is already wealthy, look at it differently and say, okay, um, how can I pay myself first? When, where, why, how, you know, and trying to figure out. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. Eliminate the word. Why? Okay. Okay. Why? You threw that in there. I left yes. it out on purpose. Okay. So who, uh, so there was how, yeah. who, what, uh, when and where, or? Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, yes. When will I, you know, like when will I begin? Where does this apply to me? Uh, how can I do this? Who can support me with this? So you've got those four W's. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> By the way, I failed high school math. That's okay. <laughs> so there were three W's and an H. Uh, the fourth W would have been why, which is an irrelevant question because okay. people take that question. Again, we're talking about mindset here and they use it in the wrong way. Like, why doesn't this work for me? Mm -hmm. Well, the answer to that is anything that'll support how you're already feeling. It's not going to take you out of the space and take you to where you want to go. Like, gotcha. like, why do I always have clients who are jerks? Well, <laughs> right. because that's the kind of clients you deserve. Okay. Well, that's not a helpful answer. Right. But it's not going to serve you. Yeah. Exactly. How do I get the kind of clients that will support me or honor what I have to say or do what I ask them to do? That'll lead to a different answer and a, an answer that'll move people forward. So I dropped out the, the question why. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. And so, so, well, you know, what I'm hearing is, you know, attitude is number one, and we'll get to forms and investments in a minute in terms of the three seekers of the wealthy. But in terms of attitudes, Rennie, is there one particular attitude that you find that um, people that want to be wealthy, but just can't that we like when you were struggling three times, and you were broke, like, what was the bit? Was, was there one attitude you were lacking, that once you realized it, it really started help moving you in the right direction? Or would that be pay yourself first? Or was there, was there another attitude that your attitude was, about yeah, money? There that was, was another really one that actually turned the tide for me. And it was, um, I have an expression for it. And it's called wealth creation is a team sport, not a solo sport. And the attitude is that successful businesses, and it doesn't matter if we're starting talking about startups, or we're talking about General Electric or Apple or Berkshire Hathaway. It's a team approach, not a solo approach. Um, and so when I looked in the past at a couple businesses where I went, uh, a business where I went broke, it, I was running it by myself. The business that was successful earlier in my life, we had a team. 
And when I started to examine this, I could see whenever I attempted to run a business by myself, it was not as successful as when I had a team of people or partners. That made all the difference. Now, a lot of your people, a lot of your listeners are probably sophisticated and they know the name Charlie Munger. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know. the na- Denise, do you know who Charlie Munger is? Yes, I do. Okay. So that's the exception for a lot of people. Well, most people know the name Warren Buffett. Mm-hmm. Well, Charlie Munger is his partner. Right. So he's the execution master and Warren is a visionary and successful businesses have at least that. So when I'm age 50 and I'm starting over again, uh, the team happened to be my wife who had uh, money when we got married and I had nothing and a real estate partner who had a vision about what to do in buying real estate. And the three of us literally went from a, a purchase of a triplex in 2001, I think it was, to about six years later, we had 50 rental units. Wow. So his a lot vision, of progress. Yeah, exactly. But it was his vision of what could be done and finding the properties and, and my skill at executing things. And that combination made it very successful. So I would say the most important that took me from broke to multi-millions was the concept of a team versus a solo approach to business. Yeah, that's so important because, you know, all the busy entrepreneurs listening to this out there, it's like, if you're still doing everything yourself, stop, stop doing everything yourself, like surround yourself with a team of people, even if it's just one or two, you know, virtual assistants, you can afford more than you think you can, like you can hire virtual assistants and people all over the world for prices that almost any business, if you got any business whatsoever, you can carve it out and afford. And me, I have a 24-7 operation where I actually have U.S.-based team and then I have uh, one assistant in the Philippines. So literally, whatever my U.S. team doesn't get done at the end of their workday, my Philippine, my, my Filipino virtual assistant can pick it up and continue working on it. And when I wake up, it's done. And then the U.S. team can keep, keep it moving forward. That's how you make rapid progress is doing things like that. So, yeah. 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 So thanks for sharing that attitude, Rennie. So I'd love to jump into forms. You talked about, you know, step or part two of the three secrets of the wealthy is the forms that they use. Tell me more about that. You said when they go into a bank, they look at the form differently than, than other people do. Tell me what you mean by that or what, what do you mean by forms? Well, I think a good example would have been from uh, uh, Robert Kiyosaki's book, um, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, where he talked about people look at their house as an investment. So, you know, if the bank is saying, oh, you want a loan, fine, let us know what your uh, assets are and what your obligations, your liabilities are. You know, so people fill out that form. A wealthy person doesn't look at uh, things like their personal property or their cars, unless they have a car, antique car collection, or they don't look at their house as assets that they have available to invest. And that's what we're talking about. You know, like someone's home, your CPA will list that as an asset, but it's not one that's going to produce financial growth unless you're using it for Airbnb. Right. Because it sucks up money. You have mortgage payments to make usually, or you've got property taxes, you've got insurance, you've got maintenance, you've got repairs. 
the house takes away money from you, it doesn't generate an income. Again, unless you're renting it out rooms for like Airbnb. So what a wealthy person is looking at is what are those assets that they can invest to grow their net worth? And that could be, you know, cash, it could be the stock portfolio, it could be, uh, uh, it could be, I've got too many cars, perhaps I should sell some, take that cash. I mean, it, it's, there are silly things that we all have, but the wealthy person looks at that and examines, is this going to increase my net worth? And that's what they're focusing on. Yeah, that's such a good point because you're right. You know, most people do think of their house as as an investment and as an asset. And it is in the truest sense, but not from the standpoint of cash flow because it costs a lot of money. It doesn't produce money in your pocket like what rental properties do, like what business income does and everything else to your point. So just teaching people to look at their own um, statement of wealth or their own asset sheet and say, you know, is this, yeah, yeah, this is an asset, but it's, it's really not making me any money right now. Maybe someday when I sell it, it'll make me money, but that's yet to be determined depending on how the market is at that time. Right. So, you know, who knows? Yeah, what, not, what only that'll they, be. not only that, but when they sell it, they may still want to live in a home. Mm -hmm. which means they're going to buy another. It's they're just going to transfer the money. Right. So it's not really, it's an asset, but it's not. So that's a, that's a good example. You know, another thing that um, I like to point out to entrepreneurs, it's a really clever approach is whenever you're doing this analysis of looking at what, what resources you have and expenses you have is, um, and you've probably done this before too, Rennie, I'd like your take on this, a great uh, overlooked resource is to say, how can I turn this idle resource that's costing me money into more cash flow? So as an example, maybe it's, You've got a team member who's only busy half the time because you don't have enough work for them, but you don't want to reduce their hours because if you do, they're going to leave. So you keep them on the payroll anyway. And what if you had customers, for example, that could hire a slice of their time for the time that they're idle and help you cover the cost of their salary? So that's an example of looking at, you know, an underutilized resource that you can then turn it into a profit center. Absolutely right. And it's so funny that you, you brought up that example because I've done that often. That My, my own assistant works part-time and in Los Angeles, it's not that easy to uh, have a part-time income and sustain any kind of decent standard of living. So mm -hmm. she always works some odd jobs and you know, I'll have people who say, well, Renny, I'm having an issue with whatever. Do you know someone who could help me with that? And then I farm her out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm doing it not from the standpoint of an underutilized resource, but to support her in generating more income. But it's the same concept. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So just like teaching, you know, I think the key point here is just training our brain to look at it differently, to look at uh, expenses and assets differently for what they really are, and then seeing how we can turn it into a, um, a better resource for cash flow and that we can then have extra to invest. Exactly. One, one of the fun examples is that um, entrepreneurs aren't so limited by this thinking, but most of the time when I meet with uh, someone who, they could be an executive with a company, a C-suite executive, could be a rank and file employee, it doesn't make that much difference. When they do the income and expense form, they show one source of income. And I've always been too insecure to have a job with one source of income because, hey, if I get laid off, I lose 100% of my income. 
still have 100% of my expenses. Mm-hmm. And on my income form, I must have a, a dozen or more sources of income to expand people's thinking to understand, well, wait a second. It's not just a paycheck. Um, it's not just commissions, but you can have royalty income. You can have product sale overrides. You could have um, different benefit income from investments, rental income, interest income. You can have multiple sources of income. It is not limited to one area. And a lot of people, like I said, have that limited thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, there's that, that's part of number three, isn't it? On investments, you know, controlling. No, your- actually, that's still part of how you look at the forms. When you fill oh. out income and expense, where's your income coming from? One source can be multiple streams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Having multiple streams of income is so key. You know, I think I have five or six different sources of income. I have, you know, my, the vacation effect, um, coaching and training company income, my law firm income, my real estate cash flow from the rentals that my husband and I have, you know, I have, um, whole life policies that kick off a, an annual, you know, a fee that or you know, not a fee, dividend, but a dividend that they pay, you know, plus our, you know, the investments that we have in, you know, what little we have like in the, the stock market, which, you know, that'll come back later. <laughs> so like, but there's like six different and, I, and if one of them is down, the others are not. So it's, it's nice because, and I think it's important to talk about this because, you know, there's ups and downs in our economy, you know, like right now at the time we're recording this interview, there's the, the coronavirus pandemic that's sweeping the world. And, so, this, you know, this just underscores the importance of multiple streams of income. If I didn't have multiple streams of income right now, I would really, really, really be hurting like a lot of people are. So, um, what, Rennie, what did you learn in your, your journey of being broke three times and, you know, to becoming a multimillionaire after age 50? What, was there one or two key things that you learned that were critical to be able to survive the ups and downs of life like this, like what we're facing right now? Uh, absolutely. And, and one of the things that I want to tell you is how amazed I was with the multiple businesses that you have because I remember you spoke about that and and you know you saw you know your home burning down and said well what's important and it was the thing like a teddy bear for your daughter uh, because you, you had a completely different look at your life and spending less time and making more money that you've done, you know, illustrates that when you've got your priorities in alignment, it's just easier to do things. And I was just so impressed with the number of businesses you have and taking off more time. So, you know, the one thing that, that I would say, you know, in a situation like this with not only multiple streams of income, but getting back to one of the first things we spoke about, which was pay yourself first is when this hit, illustrated to me how valuable, how important, and how accidentally correct I was in creating reserves, which can only be done if you pay yourself first. So I'm not worried if some of our tenants don't pay rent. I'm not worried if the online business income dips because we have reserves to weather anything. And you can only do that if you treat yourself like you matter and you pay yourself first. Right. And that's so important. And when you say reserves, you know, you mean, you know, savings for emergency. 
you know, from your yes. perspective, you know, there's different schools of thought on this. You hear, hear like Dave Ramsey or Susie Orman, you know, some people say three months, some people say six months. It's like, what's your personal opinion on, you know, how much is enough? Like, there's no magic answer. I'm just curious what your, what your perspective is. You know, that's a good question. Um, when I think about it from my vantage point, um, I internally, what makes me feel okay is seeing one year's worth of income in the various accounts. Um, so if, if I look at the savings accounts and the checking accounts, and I know that there's a year's worth of income in total, that makes me feel okay. Right. So, you know, it's, it's twice what most people talk about, but it's an individual thing. Some people might be fine with one or two months, but if someone's living and it doesn't matter if they're an entrepreneur or not, living paycheck to paycheck, and then we have something like what's occurring right now, oh my gosh, no income, no reserves, can't pay the bills, can't pay the mortgage payment, can't pay the employees, can't buy the, pay the suppliers. You know, it just goes on and on and on. Right. Well, and, and that's where, you know, I think every business owner at a minimum, at a bare, bare minimum, should have at least three months of uh, access to quick capital uh, in their savings to be able to navigate, um, you know, something like this that's happening. And, and just in general, six months, I think, is, you know, ideal. And a year is just like, oh, my gosh, I can sleep so much better at night knowing that I've got the year. So that's kind of like my own personal opinion, like three months as an absolute minimum. It's like, but how, do, how does one get there? You had to figure out how to get there. I had to figure out how to get there, you know, one dollar at a time, right? Like you pay yourself first, like what you're talking about. And so me, I've got that cash reserve and sometimes I have to dip into that cash reserve. But what I do is I put it back as fast as I humanly can. Like yeah. even if I just put it back, you know, over three or four months, a little bit, you know, a thousand dollars a month to put it back, I do that and I make it a priority over other luxury items that maybe I wanted because I know how important it is. Is that what you do or how do you recommend people no. build that reserve when they uh, build it up from scratch in the beginning when they don't think they have the money, you know, build it up over time with whatever you can. Like in your example, you gave with the guy, you got to your client who you started having to one, one or 2%, right? Exactly. And I would agree with you that a three month reserve is a minimum and yes, what I found when I started this practice, because again, you know, I was broke, the money would go in there and I might have to dip into it because of some emergency. And yes, and then I'd have to replenish it. What I noticed over time was that the fund built up to the level that it needed to. And then what I was funneling into it to build it up, I didn't have to funnel as much money into it. So there are all sorts of different approaches um, I remember one of my mother-in-laws <laughs> um, uh, had a background as an accountant, and so she would project out, well, I need to replace this roof in 20 years, then it'll cost me about this much money 20 years from now, so on a monthly basis, I'm going to set aside X dollars for the time I have to replace the roof. Mm -hmm. That's a great example, planning for the future on that. Yeah. Now, that was way too complicated for me. I'm, you know, hey. I failed high school math. I'm not, <laughs> not that sophisticated. Um, so I just, you know, came up with a percentage that looked like it worked. And I found that anywhere between 15, 10 and 15% was ideal for the expenses that show up that people didn't plan for, whether it was their car breaking down or their water heater bursting, you know, the money was there and they didn't have to turn to credit cards. 
Right. Well, and so what you're saying, Rennie, is that there's hope. If a, if a guy like you who failed high school math, was broke three times before the age of 50, figured out how to become a multimillionaire after age 50, there's hope for everyone, even when times are up and down. Like, so what can, let's talk about that. What can people do? What can business owners do when they're hurting to turn this around? I mean, like when you're in survival mode, how do you like survive, let alone thrive? What's your take on that? Well, the most important thing is not to go into your head. That's a dangerous place to go alone. What I'm talking about is this is when you have to have conversations with other people. whether And you want to find the other entrepreneurs that you're going to speak to or a business coach or whatever who have a positive mindset. Because when we get into this, this attitude of, oh my gosh, I can't pay this, I can't do this, and the economy is collapsing, you need to be in conversations with people who will take you out of that space. And most people cannot do this by themselves. And, right. you know, hey, I got to tell you, I, I was signing up for a program in the midst of what's going on right now and thinking to myself, should I be spending $30,000 on this? I don't know. I've got my doubts. I don't know, I don't know. And I ended up having a conversation with someone who was talking to me about the opportunities in this situation. And I realized, Oh my gosh, yes. Not only can I afford to spend the 30 grand, but that's going to produce massive results, especially because the times are bad right now. Right. Yeah. There's also massive opportunity at the same time that, you know, there's anytime there's an up and down in the economy, it also create, creates opportunity. Like for example, right now, so many advertisers are stopping their ads on Facebook and other online media channels because they're either closed right now or they think now's not a good time to advertise or they're having to, to tighten their belts for whatever reason. But that means it's a great opportunity to advertise, but it's got to be the right advertisement. It's got to be an advertisement that, that's relevant and meeting people where they're at right now and not being tone deaf to what's actually going on. But the point being, there's an opportunity there. So those yeah, with the capital and are willing to invest in, in the in the opportunity can do so for a better price than they otherwise would have, right? Yes, for a better price. And not only that, less competition. Mm -hmm. Because you don't have all the other people advertising for people's attention because they're running scared. Yeah, exactly. So that thanks for that analogy because, you know, a lot of a lot of entrepreneur listeners are you know, myself included are evaluating, you know, different things like, you know, thankfully, you know, I have the reserves and I'm fine, but it doesn't mean you still, even when you have the reserves that you still don't look at it like you did, you do the thought process on, is this an investment that I need to be making right now? And you came to the conclusion, yeah, I still, this opportunity still exists and I'm still going to spend this 30 grand on doing this thing that I was going to do because it makes sense. But you asked the question, you could have come to the conclusion that it didn't make sense you know, like there are some things I'm doing right now where I'm going to go ahead and continue that investment. There are others where I'm using it as an opportunity to negotiate better terms on what that looks like, right? So what's your take on, you know, the opportunities uh, in the ups and downs of business, how to seize opportunities when things are down? Well, that it's, again, not trying to figure it out by oneself, uh, because I was in a fear mode. I got to tell you, I was in a fear mode when I was looking at, oh my gosh, should I be spending $30,000 in this environment? I'm feeling insecure on and on and on. But it was actually speaking with my team members about the opportunities and recognizing, yes, I know there are opportunities, but can we actually take advantage of them? 
I decided to move forward. So it's really about having a conversation. Um, and, you know, you, you saw the opportunities and you decided to, to move forward. Now, I don't know if you were talking with someone else or, you know, you were able to do this all by yourself, but, you know, yeah, the opportunities are all around us. It's a situation where people need what you have now more than ever. It is so much more important now more than it's ever been. And so the message that you have and the support that you're providing needs to reach more people. So this is the perfect opportunity, Denise, for you, as well as a lot of your, your listeners. Yeah. And I want to underscore something you just said that I think is really important in that, you know, you evaluated um, that $30,000 opportunity with your team and you guys asked yourself, can we really seize this opportunity? And if so, then the investment is worth making. However, if you perform that analysis and you determine that, you know, this now is not the right time to make that investment because we won't be able to seize it because the travel market just fell out, for example, like now, you know, or whatever that case may be, there might be a time where the answer might be no. So I want to clarify, you're not saying, you know, just do it, whatever you're planning on doing anyway. You're saying evaluate it with, not just by yourself, but with people who know the opportunity or know the situation and can help you make an intelligent decision about that scenario. Did exactly. I understand that correctly? And the perfect example is that someone in the travel industry, what they're going to end up having to do is pivot instead of booking cruises or whatever, maybe they're going to start doing some online uh, presentations about how to look for the best deals in this situation. Um, you know, what cruise lines to take advantage of or to avoid or, you know, providing information so that when things turn around, people go to them and they have a full recovery. Right. Well, that's, that's such a great point too, is it, to the extent that now isn't the right time to sell the particular services that you might have, um, like in the, in the, like selling a cruise right now, now is not a good time to be selling a cruise, right. You know, for the, for the very near future, but that doesn't mean that that travel agency can't be looking around the corner and saying, you know what, I'm going to add as much value as I can to this audience. And, and give them what they need right now or sell them what they need right now and pivot. And then I'll have loyal, loyal fans that when they are ready to travel again, they're going to remember I was there for them. Or maybe there's a great opportunity to sell people staycations. You know, here's how to vacation at home. There might be something you can give them for free and then upgrade them if they want the more advanced package. So I just want to, you know, help people be thinking along those lines. There's opportunity everywhere, even in a crisis. It's just a matter of how you look at it. Exactly. I mean, you know, a lot of us are, young enough, old enough, whatever, to remember, at least from history, the Great Depression. Well, yes, there were long lines of people standing to get some soup, you know, the soup lines, but there were also people who made fortunes during the Depression because they saw different opportunities. Right. Well, and that everything we've been talking about here is, you know, these are timeless principles, you know, regardless of when we're up in the economy or down in the economy, you know, the point is to, as an entrepreneur, um, to have, have a plan, have a cash reserve, pay yourself first. And then what else, Rennie, when you, you know, as part of your journey of, you know, like when you kept failing, you know, three different times that when you actually went broke three different times, what was the bad pattern that you were, following. I know you mentioned one of them was not having the team and not paying yourself first. Was there anything else that you think was like the big gotcha that you want to make sure people really understand? Yeah, actually it is. It was, I 
it, previously, I was focusing on paying down debt, paying off credit cards. My focus was to get rid of debt, which is the common theme from a lot of people that I hear. You know, your accountant will say, pay, pay off your credit cards before you invest. No, that is the wrong approach. And I bought into it when I was younger. And what happens is it's a continual cycle. You pay down the debt and it comes back. You focus on paying down the debt, it comes back. It's like the difference between building muscles and dieting. If I want to lose weight, I can diet. If I want to build muscles, I have to go to the gym, I have to lift weights. And it doesn't matter how much dieting I do, I will not build muscles. And if I'm talking about creating wealth, I'm talking about investing. I'm talking about looking for opportunities. And if I'm talking about paying off debt, I'm, I'm, it's the same as dieting. That's not going to build the muscle of investing. And so what I'm getting at really is when I stop focusing on trying to pay off debt and instead focus on building my net worth, that's when things accelerated. Uh, I was only able to make minimum payments on credit cards in my 50s, and that was okay, because then by the time we had 50 units that we owned and we had a large cash flow, guess what? It was the tenants who were generating the money for me to pay off my credit cards in full every month, not me being concerned about making the minimum payments. Yeah, let's 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 talk more about that. Thank you for sharing that because I think that's really important and I want to understand the nuance of what you're saying here because you know, you're not saying to keep the debt forever, you know, just to clarify, you're saying um but not to look at automatically just trying to pay off all your credit card debt for example before you ever invest in anything else. There's a fine line there. Can you help me split hairs on the fine line between how much investing versus how much paying down debt because you need to do a little bit of both but your point is well taken that if you never start investing tomorrow's never you know some day is never going to come because the debt's always going to be there exactly um i actually ran a projection to say well let's say i had six thousand dollars of debt and i had three hundred dollars a month that i could use to pay it off and clear it out if i just made the minimum payments on the debt and then took that $300 a month and started investing it. And there are plenty of places that you can earn 10 to 12%. You know, I'm not going to get into that now. That gets, you know, to the investments that are available to wealthy people. The point is, using an old kind of example of $300 a month, uh, $3,600 a year, 12% earnings, 30 years down the road, you'd have a million-dollar portfolio. And if you just kept that $6,000 debt and made the minimum payments, you have $200,000 more money than if you focused and spent two years paying off the debt first. The time value of money is incredible. And if I spent that $300 a month and paid off the debt over two years, 30 years down the road, I'm short $200,000 thousand dollars of investment earnings because I focused on paying off a six thousand dollar debt. Yeah, isn't that interesting how the math works out on that? And you know, even even for a guy who failed math in high school, right? <laughs> you, know, you figured it out though. Now there's software that'll do it for you. So I think the key point here, what I'm hearing you say, Rennie, and correct me if I'm wrong, is just 
model it out, like run some different scenarios on, does this really make mathematical sense for me to, you know, pay the minimum payment? Um, now, don't get me wrong, if it's ridiculously high credit card debt, then you need to get it consolidated into something lower to where Rennie's strategy makes sense here. Because a high interest rate credit card, that that'll his math, his formula wouldn't have played out the way he's, he's talking about. But run the numbers is the point that I hear you say and see whether it would be better to set aside a certain, you know, 70% of that money or whatever it is towards investments and then 30% of whatever that amount was towards the pay down of the debt or some other number. And a lot of it depends upon what the interest rate is as to whether that makes sense or not. You're, you're absolutely right. You got to look at the whole situation. You got to look at it from a, an overview, the big picture, not just the details. And as a part of that, I think you touched on something very important. It's what are the interest rate on the credit cards? I've seen some people who are carrying $100,000 of credit card debt and they're at like 21, 22, 25% interest. It's, it's obscene. Right. In that example, negotiate some better rates or move it to 0% money on some kind of credit card promotion or whatever the case is. Absolutely yeah. right. But yeah, your point is well taken, though. It's like, I loved your analogy of the building the muscle versus dieting, you know, no matter how much you diet, you aren't you aren't going to build um, muscle. Exactly. So that's such a same thing with, you know, no matter how much credit card debt you pay down, you're not going to build wealth from because you're not if you're not investing, you're not building wealth. Exactly. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, one of the ways I like to uh, explain, well, you know, I'll ask you this question. Um, Denise, if you had absolutely no credit card debt, now I know, you know, this is not your situation, but try and look at it from the standpoint of one of your listeners. If you had absolutely no credit card debt, you paid off all your credit cards, you had no car loans, you had no mortgages. All I'm saying is you have no debt. Would you have financial freedom? Hmm. Well, there's... There's no, it depends on if there's any income coming from any of that. That's correct. <laughs> so, yes, because yeah, you have no debt doesn't mean you've created assets that generate an income. You right. still need to buy food. You still may want to travel. You still may want to, you know, do things and have a life and that requires an income. And the only way to have an income if you're not working is to have assets that generate that income for you. Right. And, and, that, and that's know this. So that's why it was hard for you to switch into, well, there's something about income that's missing. Yeah, exactly. Because you have that income, even if you don't have the debt. Right. Well, and that's what my husband and I always talk about is good debt versus bad debt. Yes. There's good debt. There's bad debt. There's good debt that it's worth having that debt. Like when we buy more rental properties and, and get a loan to do that or a seller carry back where they do a land contract or whatever, that's debt that we're happy to take on because there's cash flow that pays for the mortgage from the rental income. So there's a profit that we're using somebody else's money to make a profit. So that's good debt. It pays yes. for itself every single month. And even when there's a vacancy, the numbers work and it pays for itself. So that's good debt. Bad debt is, you know, not to, people are going to not like me saying this, but bad debt, you were alluding to it earlier, is your house. No, I'm not saying it's bad to have a house. I just mean from a pure standpoint, like Rennie was explaining, your house doesn't pay you to be there, you know, unless you're renting it out through Airbnb. So that's an example of bad debt. Yeah, <laughs> so right. you or, agree or with that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I just uh, looked at someone's financial statement and bad debt was he had four timeshare properties with mortgages. Oh, gotcha. 
you know, or, you know. That's what he had it as? Say that again? He had that as bad debt? I, I talked to him about why that was bad debt because he literally didn't have the income to support making these mortgage payments. Oh, gotcha. There's no thought, income being generated from these timeshares. Oh, gotcha. So it should have been good debt, but it's not good debt. So, yeah. That's correct. Yeah. And I have a friend of mine's an attorney and he has purchased, uh, well, he didn't have to purchase. He would just let people give them their timeshares and he would take over the payments and then rent them out almost like having hotel rooms. Gotcha. He turned it into a business. Yeah, that's, there's so many ways to slice that, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. But, you know, I think, I think the key point of what, you know, you're getting at and what, what I was um, adding a little bit more detail to is just on this whole idea of good debt versus bad debt and, you know, how to um, basically prepare for or always be looking for opportunities to use the capital and the credit that you have for good, for good, you know, good debt, and then using it to grow your business and grow your investments. Like, you know, um, I, I probably... Um, we'll always have different loans out there, but that doesn't scare me as long as they pay for themselves. Oh, exactly. You know, I, I have more debt now than I've ever had in my life, but it's good debt, just like you were talking about. And I'm not even the one making the payments on it. Like you said, it's the renters who are making the payment. It doesn't matter if it's Walgreens or someone living in an apartment. Right. So an example for the entrepreneurs listening to this, it's like if you're paying, there might be an opportunity, for example, for you to buy your own building and then lease sub sublease half of it so that the people that you lease the commercial space to covers your your occupancy of your team in the space and pays up pays for the building for you. And that's an example of good debt that you might want to take on. Now it doesn't always make sense to go buy your own building, but look at the math of it. Maybe it does. Yeah, depending on the person's business. And there's another example or uh, advantage as well is that the rental income that you get, even if it's your building and your corporation leasing from yourself, you don't pay social security taxes on rental income. Right. Yeah. Depending on how it's structured legally. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Depending you know, on whether it's in an LLC or, you know, yeah, but yeah, there absolutely. are ways to do it where you don't have to. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. All, yeah, all I was getting at is that there can be tax advantages as well as just the financial advantages you're talking about. Gotcha. Yeah. So Rennie, are there any last tips you have before we talk about your free gift you have for everybody? Um, any kind of time, business or lifestyle hacks beyond what we've been talking about here that really helps you, you know, stay, you know, sane and, and, and happy <laughs> and in any kind of environment. And that is, is your go-to strategy. It doesn't have to be about the stuff we've been talking about. What's one of your favorite uh, business or, or lifestyle hacks? Uh, focusing on what I do best. Um, like I said, I failed high school math. I mean, I'll add numbers wrong. Um, so I have an assistant who does what it is I can't stand doing. And that frees up the time for me to do what I do best and make more money. Gotcha. And I, I take it that that's made a big difference in your life. Oh, God. Yeah. Not only from the standpoint of making more money, but just the relief of the stress of avoiding having to do the things I hate doing. Yeah, that's so important, isn't it? That's part of being a, having a good lifestyle and being a happy entrepreneur, which I'm all about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I well, know you've done yeah. a great job. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So what, tell us about this free gift you were telling me, uh, something about a pre-release copy of uh, that Attitudes of the Wealthy book you mentioned. Did I get that right? You were, you were yeah. talking about that before? Yeah. That you, you got that right. Um, if people just go to uh, the website Wealth on Any Income, which is the title of my award-winning best-selling book, and they do forward slash gift, wealthonanyincome.com forward slash gift, they'll get a, um, a pre-release copy of the book Attitudes of the Wealthy, where I've listed about th over 30 attitudes that the wealthy operate by. And gosh, I guess if I were able to operate by all of them, I'd probably be a billionaire instead of a multimillionaire. But hey, you know, I'm not perfect. I still make mistakes. Don't we all? But it's great that you've captured that there. And what will the benefit be for them to to take a look at that and download that? Just to help them understand more about that part of the your three three secrets of the wealthy and what attitudes the the wealthy tend to have and share. Yeah, that's the most important because it's the mindset that creates everything. It's understanding. Oh, well, I thought uh, you know focusing on the details was really important. Well, yes, but you got to focus on the big picture first. And attitudes like this give them the opportunity to say, oh, you know, I need to adjust my thinking in this area or that area. And it just leads to more success. Great. Well, thank you for offering that to everyone. And thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Rennie. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you, Denise. It's been my pleasure and my honor. And thank you for the invitation. Yes, you're welcome. And remember, everyone, freedom is a mindset, not a destination. Until next time. Thanks so much for listening. For more information about The Vacation Effect or for details on today's show, head over to our website at vacationeffect.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.